welcome to Harvest Australia Church Podcast. We're so glad you're listening today. We pray this blesses you and encourages you. And if you want to get in touch with us or find out more about our ministry, please check out our website or social media. We pray you have a great day. So um, let me begin by saying I'd like to pray. Uh, the message that I thought the Lord and I prepared together on Wednesday, apparently his female part kicked in and he's changed his mind. And, um, and so, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, I was feeling very unsettled this morning as I went for a walk to try and figure out what on earth you're up to, Jesus. And I didn't find out until we got into the worship. So, uh, so I'm going to pray. Jesus, help me. Amen. <laughs> Uh, so, um, in part, I feel like the Lord wants me to speak into uh, the name of your church prof- somewhat prophetically. Uh, I feel like the Lord wants me to speak into the word harvest. Um, and as we came in the driveway uh, this morning, the sign that's on the front of the building really sort of just came out at me. And so that's what triggered a whole bunch of thoughts as I came into the worship. And so, Um, Let me uh, read here from um, Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 1. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him uh, to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I personally am convinced that Australia, over the next decade at least, is going to see a significant influx of people coming to faith. I believe that we are right on the cusp of a move of the Spirit that's going to see many people get born again, just like you and I have had the privilege of being born again. And I think that the Lord has been preparing churches all over our nation to receive these new believers into great healthy families. And I think the Lord has been trying to help us uh, as churches understand what it looks like to be family, what it looks like to be the family of God, what it looks like to love one another and honour one another and respect one another in ways that we possibly haven't been so good at in the past. And so that was in part what I was speaking into yesterday when I had the privilege of speaking with uh, the leaders and volunteers. And so if I'm right, if the Lord is actually getting ready to bring in large numbers of people into the kingdom of God, the question we've got to ask ourselves is, how is he going to do that? And uh, the the wonderful thing about the Lord, uh, and I said this yesterday as well, the kingdom of God is built on curiosity, not certainty. And, uh, and we love certainty. You know, all of us love things to be certain. We like to know where we're going. We like to know what's been done. But, but I've noticed that the Lord changes things up. And uh, the way he's done it in the past is not necessarily the way he does it in the future. Behold, I do a new thing, you know, says the Lord. And so we always need to be curious about what's he up to and how's he going to do it this time around. When we live with certainty, we tend to put him in a box and we can lose the fresh thing that he's trying to do. And we need to always honour those that we're standing on the shoulders of. I am, I am just, I am so grateful to those who went before Lynn and I in Melbourne who have prayed for over a hundred years and I feel like we stand on their shoulders. I feel like Stairway is the answer to the prayers of saints that live probably back in the 1910s and 1920s. And so I'm very, I'm very attentive to honouring the past but I don't want to be a person of tradition because it brings certainty. I want to be a person of curiosity because it brings faith. And so, so curiosity, and, and Jesus, this is, you know, he, he always got you curious. He told all these stories and parables, and they kept saying, what does that mean? You know, he wanted them to be curious to seek it out. 
It's the glory of God to conceal the matter. It's the glory of kings to discover it. And so, so the kingdom is actually built on curiosity. And so I'm curious. I have been curious over the last numbers of years with my team to try and understand, Lord, how are you going to do this this time around? What's it going to look like? And, uh, and so I'm, as I've been praying that, I've been reminded of the loaves and the fishes. I, I, I don't know whether you would do this, but I try and put myself into the stories of the Bible. And as I put myself into that story, I, imagine, I try to imagine what it would have been like to be one of the disciples where you look out at this crowd of 5,000 men, and so there's women and children out there as well. So let's call it 10,000. 10,000 people out there, and you watch the Lord take a little boy's lunch. Now, you've got to be curious at that point, don't you? You know what I mean? You're either curious or you're so full of doubt in your self-talk, you're saying, this is idiotic, this is not going to work. Um, but I'm sure that by then they'd learned how to be curious and go, I wonder how he's going to do this. He possibly surprised them in their curiosity because they have been used to him doing all sorts of things. But he then said, now I want you to hand it out. I'm not quite sure how they thought it was going to be handed out. I'm not quite sure how they thought it was going to get from the little boy's lunchbox out into that big crowd. But I could be reasonably certain that they weren't thinking they were the ones that would have to do it. Because I'd be reasonably certain they'd be thinking, how on earth can we do it? There's just not enough here to go around the 12 of us, let alone everybody else. And so, so the Lord then offers them an opportunity to step into what I think is one of the greatest miracles of the New Testament that they would have a bit of bread and a bit of fish and they'd walk along and they'd break some off. I wonder whether they broke a little bit off to begin with because they thought, well, I can't give it. I've just got to make sure it's just a little bit. And it, and, but, but then they, as they broke it off, I, I wonder what happened to the piece of bread and the piece of fish. I wonder if when they broke it off, it actually grew a little bit. And I went, oh, more curiosity at play. And so then they break it off and it grows a bit more. And then they start to realise, actually, I can break off as much as I need to to give away to everybody so they're not going to live here hungry. And, you know, you wonder, I mean, some of my friends who tell stories better than I end up telling that they're carrying whales, you know, breaking off bits of whale to everybody. And, <laughs> and, but, but there's something going on here, isn't there? There's, there's something of a miraculous nature that God, Jesus, wanted the disciples to participate in because he wanted to mark them. He wanted to touch them. So that when they knew that they were going to become fishers of men, that they understood that when they were fishing for men, that they weren't doing it in their own strength, but they were somehow connected to the Holy Spirit who was going to make it possible. And so, so as I, you know, I've been down the front here, I, I feel like the Lord is wanting to me to encourage you to consider, to be curious, will the Lord actually in this great move that I feel is coming to our nation want to use his people like he's never used them before in sharing the gospel and actually leading their friends to faith and you would be the disciple maker? That it's not the church's responsibility. It's not the responsibility of Marty and Karen and Ryan and or everybody else to sort of put on events that you can somehow coax people to come to and hope that when they get in here, the Spirit's going to touch them and they'll come to faith and then you hand them over to a new Christians team to disciple. No, what if it was your privilege to actually lead them to faith in your lounge room and you then have tools in your hands to disciple them all the way through into maturity? You see, my role, uh, if, you know, in the Ascension Gift Ministries, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, I know I'm not an evangelist, so I'm one of the other four, um, and I'm probably not a prophet, but, uh, but my role is to equip people so that they can do the work of the ministry. And so, so what if 
the Lord is actually wanting us to step out of our traditions of understanding how all of this works into a whole new way of him bringing people to faith. I feel like the name of your church is prophetic because I wonder whether you can actually be one of the forerunners in leading the way into this space that God is opening up. I wonder whether the name of your church is a prophetic statement about how God sees you and what he imagines could be possible with you. I wonder whether there's an invitation in the name of your church to step into a space that the rest of us in the country can follow and can emulate and can learn from. Somebody's got to be the forerunners. Somebody's got to lead the way. And so I'm down the front here and I'm feeling the Lord sort of speaking to me about all this. And so all I can do is offer it to you as a suggestion this morning and you then will need to figure out how you work with that. And so, so when you send labourers out, you know, pray that they'll send out labourers. We're probably praying for the person who's behind us or beside us to be the labourer, not us. <laughs> but the New Testament church, it expanded by people going into their communities. Now, I understand it was very different. They were much smaller communities and they didn't travel far and, you know, relationships were much closer and families grew up with one another from generation to generation. I get all of that. I understand the social context was different, but it was still premised on the thought of go rather than come. And it was premised on the thought that God's people would go because it seemed that people like me spent time in prayer and in the Word more than we did the going sort of piece. Although Thomas, you know, reportedly went to India and he was responsible for the church starting down in southern India. And so there's all these stories out of church history about, you know, apostolic and prophetic ministries that that moved around and and started things. But essentially the the church growing, Paul planted a church, but then he'd move on 18 months later, two years later, and he'd leave it in the hands of the local people to follow Jesus' word of go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And, and so what if there's a whole new era that's dawning on us? What if there's a whole new space that God is opening up for us and that God actually wants us to see ourselves as the labourers, that you're a labourer? Can you actually say to yourself, I'm a labourer, Lord, send me? That can be a freaky, overwhelming sort of thing because it's like, well, what am I meant to go with? And I, I think one of the challenges that we face is that, you know, when I, Lynn and I had the pleasure of being out at Marty and Karen's for a little while yesterday and, and you drive up into their driveway and they've got a couple of really old bits of machinery that used to be used back in the 1920s and 1930s to plough the fields. And so the labourers back in those days had horse-drawn ploughs that would, you know, plough out the field and now they sit as icons of Australian history in Marty and Karen's front yard, which are just just wonderful representations of of the history, but they represent a tradition that's come and gone. Labourers don't use horses to pull ploughs anymore. And so the tools, when you're a labourer, what are the tools that are in your hands? And and one one of the the things that I feel the Lord is, is moving is that In our cultural context, sin doesn't make sense to people anymore. We live in a world of tolerance. We live in a world where everybody's opinion is equal. Tell you what, if I get a brain tumor, I don't, if you're a carpenter, this is no disrespect to you, but I don't want a carpenter looking at my brain tumor to tell me what to do. I want to, I actually want want a brain surgeon to look at it. So not everybody's opinion is equal. Don't go down that rabbit hole, Peter. Stay right away from it. Come back. Come back here. There's always about three conversations that are going on when you're a preacher. And, uh, and one of those conversations is stay away from there. And so, 
so as laborers, if we are to be the laborers, just if the, as the disciples handed out the loaves and fishes, if you are to be a laborer, what, what is it that's in your hands? And so we have this tradition of preaching a gospel that's aimed at sin. We have the four spiritual laws. Now, please hear, this is all commentary. This is no criticism. I'm just saying the world's changed. And just like we wouldn't think about using a horse-drawn plow to do work on a farm anymore, maybe we need to rethink how God wants to reach this generation and what the tools look like that he's trying to put into our hands. Now, I'm not saying that we don't... Ultimately, somebody has to acknowledge they are a sinner and pray and ask God to forgive them. But should that be the front end of our message is really what I'm wanting to ask you to work with me on this morning and consider and think about. And so, so when you talk to people about sin today, they don't think they're sinners. But when you look at the social facts about our culture, what you see is that people don't feel like they belong. It's why suicide is so high. It's why people are aspirational in buying houses and spending 110% of their income because they're trying to belong by what they own. People don't feel like they belong because families are breaking down and they're not quite sure where they fit inside of a family structure. Our culture is racked with people who don't feel like they belong. And so, so back in the 50s and 60s when you know, Billy Graham was travelling the world and doing such an outstanding job in presenting the gospel and presenting it around sin because in those days they actually believed in sin in the way that made sense when they listened to Billy Graham. What if we could preach the gospel in a way that was true to the scripture but actually came at it from the issue of belonging rather than from the issue of sin, ultimately understanding that they do need to face the issue of sin, but that if they had a journey through belonging and then realized that they were separated from God because of self-determination, which ultimately is sin, and they needed to repent of that, then that would make a lot more sense to the current culture in which we live. Now, I would want to suggest to you, as humbly as I know how to, as a choleric person, that this is essentially how the gospel was preached in the New Testament. I would want to suggest to you that if you read the New Testament letters, you don't see them presenting the gospel with a focus on a punitive God who wants to punish sin. That's not really the message of the New Testament letters. The message of the New Testament letters is that there is a loving God who wants to show kindness to people and adopt them into his family. That sounds like belonging to me. What if we could actually understand how the Lord wants us to bring the gospel to our culture in a way that makes sense to them and that they go, you mean God doesn't want to punish me, he wants to love me. You mean God wants to bring me into his family? Now that gets problematic just in itself because family has so many difficult connotations for so many people, but, but we can unpack that with them in a way that helps them to make sense of it. And so let's go to Luke chapter 19 um, and just let me just sort of try and lay some foundations here. Um, Luke 19, uh, some of you will be aware of these scriptures. I, I'm aware that you've connected with our college and uh, not everybody's gone there. So for those of you who've heard this before, just hang in with me. Uh, we'll get to some new stuff in a minute. 
So Luke chapter 19, verse 9. So this is, the, this is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is seeing that Jesus is coming. He climbs up a tree and Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, I need to have a meal with you today. Come down and goes into Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus, in the presence of Jesus, feels convicted and says, I'm going to give a whole bunch of stuff away which I have illegally taken from people. With that in mind, Jesus then in verse 9 says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save. The word there is not those. The regional Greek word there is that or what. If you're reading a New American Standard Bible, it will say that. If you're reading a New International Version Bible, it will say what. If you're reading the New King James Version Bible, it says that, I think, from memory. And so Jesus is saying, so those Bibles that have been translated literally from the original language not influenced by somebody else's thought about what Jesus was saying, but what he actually said. Salvation has come to this household because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save something, not someone. He came to seek and to save that or what which was lost. The better word there for lost is actually destroyed. And so the son of Jesus is saying, the son of man came to seek and to save something that was destroyed. What is the something that was destroyed that he came to seek and to save? We find it in the verse before, in verse 9. Today salvation has come to this household because he repented from his sin and avoided being punished by God. No. Salvation has come to this household because he too is a son of Abraham. It's an issue of identity. It's an issue of belonging. It's an issue of being brought back into his family of the Jewish nation. He couldn't be called a son of God because Jesus hadn't died for sin and risen again from the dead. But we are now called children of God, as we see in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4, that the whole message of Jesus was that we would be adopted back into the family of God. And so salvation, so when you were born again, the most significant thing that happened to you was not you avoiding going to hell so that you could go to heaven. The most significant thing that happened to you was that your identity was changed that you actually now are seen by God as one of his children. You are in his family. You now belong in a different family where you belonged to the father of lies. You now belong to the father of kindness and mercy and goodness and righteousness. And so salvation for Jesus, Jesus, when he came, he, he came to seek and to save something, not someone that was lost or destroyed. So it's, I'm proposing to you that's our identity. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, in the garden, Adam and Eve are living in oneness with God. They are children of God. They are in the family of God. They're relating to God as a father. And he came into, a, into the garden as a father. He didn't, he, even when they'd sinned, he didn't come in as a judge. When the, when the father came into the garden, he asked two questions. Where are you and who told you that? He didn't come in angry wanting to punish them and throw them out of the garden. What he wanted them to do was to actually repent of what they'd done. The question, where are you, is not a geographical question. He knows exactly where they are. The question of where are you is a relational question. Where have you gone in your relationship with me? Because I can tell something's changed. And this is the way that God works with us. He'll say, where are you in your relationship with me when you're gossiping? Where are you in your relationship with me when you're lying? Where are you in your relationship with me when you get angry, when you sulk? When you have unforgiveness, you know, he's saying, where are you in your relationship? And what Adam and Eve, the, the opportunity for them was to say, we've sinned and we need to be sorry. But they said, no, we're afraid of you and we're hiding from you. 
And so his next question was another opportunity for them. God will always try and help you be self-aware of the things that he's wanting you to address and to change. And the next question was, who told you that? Who told you to be afraid of me? Somebody else has got into this relationship. Somebody else has got in here and is distorting the way that you see me. And, and so then, you know, everybody blamed one another. And, uh, and the devil didn't have a leg left to stand on by the time the argument was over. And, and so, so what was destroyed in the garden was their oneness with God. And it was destroyed because the devil tempted them and said, you can be like God knowing good from evil. You can be like God knowing right from wrong. Why don't you exchange your oneness with God for being like God? If oneness was important to them and if they really saw God as their father, they should have gone back to the father and said, we've had this conversation with a serpent that's turned up and he's suggesting that we can eat of that tree that you said we shouldn't eat of. What do you think? That's what a oneness response would have done. But a self-determination response says, oh, we'll just do what we want to do. And as soon as they did what they wanted to do, they exchanged oneness with God for being like God. And that has a whole bunch of consequences that I don't have time to talk about today. Suffice to say, what I'm trying to illustrate is that the first Adam lost oneness with God and lost their identity as children of God. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to restore oneness and bring us back into the family of God. That was what he came to seek and to save. He came to seek and to save, not your sinfulness so that you don't go to hell. He came to seek and to save you and restore you as a child of God that you now are adopted into the family of God. And that's the wonderful message that we carry for a world that doesn't belong. That, that your self-determination has taken you into a space where your life now is not working out for you. But you can actually fix that self-determination thing. I mean, this is the hallmark of the devil. The devil, he was the one who broke oneness with the Father. He was the originator of good and evil, the originator of right and wrong. I can do your job better than you, God. And so he created a world in which he challenged being one with God and he invited mankind into the same world by offering them, tempting them. You can exchange your oneness with God for being like God. And so we all then got born into the human race, which tends to live from right and wrong rather than the pursuit of oneness. And so the second Adam, when he came, he came, his message was, I want to restore you back into relationship with a loving father. You see, God never wanted to be a judge. Judges protect the integrity of things. If somebody's stealing from your house and they get caught and they're stolen from 10 other people's houses, they get put in jail because they want to protect the integrity of every other house that they could rob from. If someone's put in jail for murder, they're put in jail to protect the integrity of other people so they don't get murdered. And so God had to become a judge because he had to protect the integrity of the tree of life. Because if they ate from the tree of life, then sin would have been incarcerated in mankind for all time. And so he had to judge them and take them out of the garden to protect the integrity of the tree of life. But in John chapter 5, Jesus says the Father has now handed all judgment over to the Son. Jesus can judge mankind because he actually paid the penalty for their sin on the cross. He was punished. And so if we put our faith in that work and his resurrection, then we don't actually have to be judged anymore because he was judged for us. But if we don't put our faith in him, then we are judged. Why did the Father give all judgment over to Jesus? Because the Father wanted to become the Father again. He's always wanted to be a father to mankind. He's always wanted to be kind. He's always wanted to be generous. He's always wanted to be loving. And so our story, our message, 
the gospel that we can bring to people in our schools, in our universities, in our neighborhoods, with our family, with our workmates, is that we actually have a story to tell about a kind God. Now, they've heard another story about a punishing God. And so what if we as laborers were actually saying, I need to find tools that can help me to tell this story in a way that is true to the gospel, but makes sense to the culture in which I live? And so one of the reasons why we don't want to be laborers is because we feel like we've got to drag a plow behind a horse in a culture that is actually all computerized. We feel ill-equipped to actually present this wonderful gospel because we know that people reject the sin basis of the gospel the way that was preached 70 years ago. But what if we could actually learn together how to bring the gospel in a way that talked about being adopted into the family of God and we meet the human need of belonging This is how missionaries preach the gospel all around the world. They meet human need. They start schools. They feed people. They dig wells. They meet human need. And as they meet human need, they build relationship with people. And out of those relationships, they're able to bring the gospel to them. And so if we're going to be missionaries to our own culture, what's the greatest need of our culture? The greatest need of our culture is nothing material. It's all about the brokenness of of their humanity. And the fact that they just, deep down inside, they don't feel like they belong. They won't say that right up front. But that's what's going on inside. And so what if we as churches, what if you as a congregation with this great prophetic name of Harvest could go on a journey together and figure out how can we put tools in people's hands that help them to preach the gospel, not, you know, on a soapbox, but just in the way we live and the way that we tell the story that brings people to a place of meeting their need of belonging. Now, we can only do that if we really understand what happened to us when we got born again. So let me try and illustrate this with the story of Mephibosheth out of 2 Samuel chapter 9. I find saying Mephibosheth over and over again very difficult. (laughs) And I end up spitting, and the people on the front row suffer from that. So I'm going to call him Frank. (laughs) So Frank, as a child, is the son of Jonathan. And Jonathan is the son of Saul. And Saul is the king of Israel. There's another man called David, who is the contemporary of Jonathan. Jonathan and David are friends. But David has been anointed to be the king of Israel by Samuel. And so Saul and David don't have the greatest relationship on the face of the planet. And so the story unfolds that Saul and Jonathan are in a battle... And in that battle, they both die. So the king of Israel has died, his natural heir has died, and then everybody looks to David to become the king of Israel. In their day, historically, what happened in those days, that when a new family line ascended to the throne, the new family line killed everyone in the old family line, so their kingship could not be threatened, could not be challenged. And so Frank, who's Jonathan's son, is now in peril. And Frank's nurse knows this. And so Frank's nurse loves Frank so much that she wants to hide Frank from David's family so he doesn't get killed. So she picks him up and she begins to run to hide him. But unfortunately, she drops him and breaks both his feet and he becomes a cripple. So time goes past. David becomes the king. And I think in 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we read this story, I think David's actually heard on the grapevine that Frank's still alive. Because he says to his court, he says to those that are closest to him, are there any of Jonathan's descendants that are still alive? Because I want to show the kindness of God to them. 
Now remember, Frank is David's enemy because he could challenge David for the throne. Whilst we were yet enemies, God showed his kindness to us that we would repent. So this story of Mephibosheth, Frank, is an incredible illustration of what happened to us when we were born again. And so, so he's caught here to say to David, actually there is. I think they got caught because they knew if they said no and he knows that there is, then they were in trouble. And if they say yes, they've got to trust that he actually does want to show kindness to Frank. And so they say yes, so they go and bring Frank. And they, as they bring Frank, Frank comes and he postures himself. He knows he's possibly in trouble. He's not sure whether he can trust David. He says to David, what has a dead dog got to offer you? Now, now, he knows that he's an enemy of God. He knows that he's crippled. He knows in those days what you offered a king was either wealth or that you could fight in an army. He could do neither of those things. When we came to Jesus, we came as cripples as well because we're broken on the inside. We're broken. We've been in sin. We, we've got all these parts of our lives that aren't working the way that they should in the kingdom of God. We don't actually really have very much to offer God other than our obedience and his love wants to restore us into who he's always wanted us to be. And so kindness, so, so David says to Frank, it's all good, I want you to eat at my table, I want you to become a part of my family, I want to adopt you into my family. Not only do I want to adopt you, I now also want to restore to you all of Jonathan's lands. I want you to have his inheritance and I'm going to give it back to you. This is what happened to us as well. We got brought into the family of God. We now eat at the table of God. When we have communion, we're celebrating the fact that we're at the table of the Lord. And he has given us an inheritance. He says that he has made us worthy God. Colossians 1 verse 12, he has made us worthy to be participators with the inheritance of the saints. And we have this access to heaven that we can release on earth. We carry the answer to every human being because of the inheritance that Jesus won for us. An inheritance is something that you didn't pay a price for, but it's yours. Jesus paid the price and we have received the inheritance. And this is exactly what happened for Frank, a cripple who's got nothing to offer the king other than the fact that he was, uh, was uh, Jonathan's son. And all we have to offer the king of kings and the Lord of lords is that we are sons of God. And he wants to restore that identity to us and he then wants to give us an inheritance and so when you got born again, the most significant thing that happened to you was not that you escaped hell and now if you keep following the rules and doing the right thing, you'll go to heaven, which is the way that a lot of Christians think. In, in America, 82%, George Barner did some research a couple of years ago, 82% of self-confessed Christians believe that their spiritual maturity was measured by how well they followed the rules. But our spiritual maturity isn't measured by how well we follow the rules. Our spiritual maturity is measured by how much do we understand that God loves us so that we can give that love away to other people. Because that's the New Testament commandment, love one another as I have loved you. But you see, we've got caught in this, this old mindset of right and wrong. We think that God is actually obsessed with how well we follow the rules because we still live in a right and wrong worldview rather than living in a worldview that I'm an adopted child of God. And the issue of right and wrong doesn't have a mark on me anymore because he who knew no sin became sin on my behalf that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that God isn't wanting to set you free from the power of your sin. That's another four messages out here. And so I'm not saying, and this is Paul's, you know, Romans chapter 6, does that mean that we can sin even more? May it never be. If we actually understand what Jesus has done for us, we understand grace is to release us into the fullness of who he always intended us to be. It's not permission to sin. 
Why would we want to hurt the one that has done so much for us? And so what happens is that we tend to live with sin consciousness more than we live with sun consciousness. We tend to live with the thought that I'm but a dead dog and I don't have anything to offer you. I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, you are a saint of the Most High God. You are a child of God. And when we don't understand the story, we don't know how to tell it. When we don't understand that we actually, that Jesus, he didn't die for someone, he died for something. He, he came to save our identity and restore us into the family of God that we might belong with God and eat at his table and participate of the inheritance that Christ won for us. That's our story. It's an incredibly powerful story. A God who loves every family on heaven and earth. A God who loves every human being and who just wants relationship with every human being. He doesn't want to punish people for doing wrong. He wants to liberate them from the prisons that they've put inside of themselves because of self-determination. And so when we understand the story and when we look at Mephibosheth and read 2 Samuel 9 and put ourselves in that place, we realize this is amazing what God has done for me. I stand in awe that I am actually a child of God. And not just because I sing it, because I know that I am his son. And as a son, he has given me everything that I need to serve him in the way that I have been called to serve him. And that it's got all I bring to the equation is my obedience and my faithfulness. The extraordinary thing about the kingdom of God, when you're faithful in the world, you get more money and more time off. When you're faithful in the kingdom of God, you just have more responsibility. <laughs> you get to look after more cities. And... Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> I genuinely believe that the Lord is looking for people in this hour that would say, Lord, I want to be a labourer, send me. But as a labourer, I recognise I need new tools. So, Lord, can you help me be a part of a group of people that would discover the new tools, the, the message that meets the human need of belonging, that ultimately to, to come into the family of God, hear me well, they still need to pray and ask God to forgive them for their sin. I'm not removing that from the equation. I'm just talking about how we tell the story. And what the story is that we're telling. We're not asking people to live as sinners saved by grace. We're asking them to live as saints of God, as children of God. And I want to suggest to you that if you read the New Testament letters, this is how they presented the gospel. Because the first half of Paul's letter to the Romans, the Philippians, the Colossians, the Ephesians, the Galatians, is all about this is what we believe about ourselves. And the second half is because we believe this, this is how we behave and so what Paul is, he understands that behavior is always the echo of belief. When you get angry, you're getting angry because you're believing something. You don't get angry in a vacuum. You believe you need to be right. You believe that you are being threatened. You believe that something needs to be addressed. And so you use anger to try and get your way because you've lived in a self-determination world. Your, your anger is connected to a belief because behavior is always the echo of belief. This is the 12-step programs understand this, that if you want to set somebody free from drug addiction, gambling, whatever, you need to help people change their belief because then their behavior changes. And so when we tell the story, what we're wanting people to change their belief about is that they're changing their belief about there is a God who wants to show me kindness. There's a God who wants to give me grace and mercy. And that I know, I, I actually know deep in my heart that I have received that grace and mercy. This is why Paul was so effective, because he knew the mercy and grace that he'd received. 
He knew that he was an ambassador of reconciliation. And he knew it because of how he'd killed Christians and had been so hostile to God. And he understood what had actually happened to him when he was born again. And he continually tells this story in his letters. That we are adopted, we are forgiven. A sacrifice once and for all and for all time. Be dead to sin and be alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6 verse 11. And so the story that the New Testament church told was one of adoption into the family of God. I think it's that story that our culture is longing for. And I want to present to you this morning that there is an invitation from heaven to harvest church, to step into a future with curiosity as to what God might do with you and how he might use you as a bearer of a flag that the rest of us can learn from and can follow. Could we all stand together this morning and can I have the worship team to return? All right. Um, Closing eyes, adopt the prayer position. Um, This this next moment, these next few minutes, they need to be reasonably sober moments. Um, And so my invitation to you, I just want to pray uh, for anybody who's ready to accept the invitation. Now, you may not be ready, and that's cool. I, I, I understand that. You know, the, there are stories when somebody, a man asks a woman to marry him, she says, I need more time to think about it. And so invitations don't have to be responded to immediately and you might need some more time to think about it. But what I do want to say to you that if you do want to respond to the invitation that the Lord's offering, I think, to you this morning, you need to be prepared to follow through. You need to honour him with your obedience. We honour God with our obedience. We honour him with our faithfulness. We give him his full reward when we are obedient and we are faithful. And so if you're not ready to respond to the invitation affirmatively this morning, that's all good. That's fine. I'm totally cool with that. Go away. Think about a process. It'd be like the Berean Christians consider. But there may be some here who are ready to accept the invitation. I'm not going to ask you to self-identify at all. I just in your own heart between you and the Lord want you to let the Lord know I, I actually want to be one of these labourers. I'm curious to see how this might work. I want to join a company of people here at Harvest Church to go on this journey together. And I'll leave it up to Marty and Karen and Ryan and others to figure out how they might put you together in a group and begin to work together if they think what I've said today has got any truth, which they might correct all next week. (laughs) So let me just pray for you. I'm going to pray for those who are ready to accept the invitation. I'm going to pray for those who need some more time. So Holy Spirit, I thank you for the invitation that I sense is coming from heaven today to this wonderful company of people. I thank you that this church has a history of being on the cutting edge of what you do. And I thank you that this invitation seems to be on the cutting edge of what you're about to do in our nation with regard to people coming to faith. So, Lord, I want to pray for those that are ready to say yes to this invitation. And I pray, Lord, that you give them the courage to follow through. 
I ask your Holy Spirit to give them wisdom and insight and revelation to know, Lord, how to work together to figure out how they create tools that tell this story that can be put in the hands of many. Lord, I pray for those who are considering the invitation. I ask, Lord, that you would continue to draw them back to these words that they've heard this morning. And Holy Spirit, that you would help them to land where you want them to land and in the way that you want them to land. Lord, above all else, we pray for our nation today. We pray, Lord, for this wonderful nation of Australia. She's in deep trouble, Lord. We seem to be losing our way in so many ways, Lord. And we ask in the name of Jesus, would you send labourers out into the harvest, Lord? Lord, would you equip the people of God in our nation to carry the message of belonging, the kindness of God being adopted into a family? Lord, would you help us to craft your message in a way that makes sense to our nation, that they would find the wonder of who Jesus is as the risen Lord? Lord, we pray that there will be an outpouring of kindness over our nation, Lord, because that's what leads to repentance. Help us to be carriers of that kindness, I pray. In Jesus' name. 